Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. So FTLA mod is a fusion protein. It's not an antibody. It targets MHC class 2 receptors and donic cells, and it will activate the donic cells in a few hours. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Benchtalk Bios podcast series by LifeSite Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, it is my great pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Frederick Tribell. He is the founder, CSO, and CMO of Immutep. Doctor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Neil, today. So first things first, for the benefit of those who may not be familiar with Immutep, Let's start with the elevator pitch. 60 seconds or less. Tell me, where is Immutep headquartered? How long have you been in business? And give me an idea of what you do there. So Immutep is based in Sydney, Australia, and the company is listed on the A6 as well as on the NASDAQ. We are developing immunostimulatory product for immuno-oncology and also immunosuppressive product, immunity. And all of that is based on the knowledge we have on the LAX3 MHE class 2 interaction. We're going to get a far more detailed download on the Imitep story in a few minutes, but in keeping with the mission of Benchtop Bio, which is to introduce listeners to senior management, let's first talk a bit about you. Let's start with the obvious. You're not Australian. And in addition to that, you're not merely an expert in LAG3, just because that's the company you founded. You are, in fact, the world's expert in LAG3 because you discovered it. Now, I'll get a bit more on your background in a few moments, but first, I don't get to talk to many discoverers of things, and I'm always intrigued about that day or maybe that moment where you said to yourself, that band on that gel, that's the thing I've been looking for. Do you remember that time, that day? Yes, that was a long time ago. It was in 1988, and at the time, I was interested in cloning mRNA express in activated T-cells and not in resting T-cells, and I end up with several families of mRNA called LAG1, LAG2, LAG3, LAG4 lymphocyte activation gene. And we end up uh, seeing some uh, similarities between LAG3 and CD4. And CD4 is a co-stimulatory molecule binding MHE class 2. And at the time, it was quite interesting and I continue working on LAG3 because of that, MHE class 2 being at the center of the immune response. I see. All right, now let's go a bit further back. You trained at Pierre and Marie Curie University, from which you emerged in 1985 as a hematologist with a PhD in immunology. Now, I'm curious about those interests and the timing. Steve Rosenberg was at the NIH. Was, he was making headlines in 1984 with the use of IL-2, and roughly the same time, stem cell transplants were becoming more survivable. But what was your motivation for studying this extraordinarily difficult subject? 
Well, the main reason was that I was a human immunologist, not working on mouse models. And there were very few at the time, and we were working on tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, dissecting uh, human tumors. And we realized that in some tumors like uh, renal cell cancer, there were more T cells than tumor cells. So it looked like a autoimmune disease site. And that was in line with our thinking that indeed tumor cells are under immunosurveillance and TILs would accumulate there because that's where the antigen are residing and is a source of antigens. And these TILs were not very cytotoxic. They did kill the tumor cells in vitro only if we had IL-2. So there was kind of uh, energization of these T cells. So it was interesting to look at uh, these human tills to understand why the tumor can evade immunosurveillance. So from very early in your work, you were thinking of it from a translational point of view. This wasn't merely just basic science. Well, it was basic science because in the 90s, Many receptors were cloned. Uh, CTLA-4 was cloned in Marseille in 1984, and then PD-1 or a little bit later in 93 or 94 in Japan. And like three, our first publication is 1990. So all these three are co-inhibitory receptors. And uh, in fact, at the time, we didn't know what this means. I mean, how T cells are deactivated. We knew about activation of T-cells, but we thought that T-cells will be deactivated just because there is a lack of IL-2 around. So it was sort of a passive mechanism, but in fact not. There are some what's called now immune checkpoints uh, controlling these T-cells not becoming wide and being controlled by the general immune system. It's interesting. I remember talking to Carl June, who started as a stem cell hematologist, and he was talking about his early work. He began to have extraordinary respect just how deadly a T cell activation can be, and that he started to think immediately, well, how do you turn this off? And that became his priority in that mission. So after your training, you moved not far to Gustave Roussy, which is just outside of Paris, and you rose to the ranks to become the head of cellular immunology. And in that capacity, you designed and you ran phase one, two clinical trials in immunotherapy. Now, this was at a time before checkpoints existed. What sort of immunotherapies were you working with? Well, basically, we were interested in developing a new sub-Q administration for IL-2 and trying to understand which patients are going to get some benefit. And uh, in fact, we didn't success at predicting which patients are going to get a long partial remission. On the other side, uh, we're working, of course, with the therapeutic vaccines, mainly in melanoma, developing lipopeptide or other stuff, as well as cellular therapies, meaning autologous NK cells injected back to patients. So there were lot of phase one running. And at the end of the day, all of that was not very successful, I should say. But we learned a lot along the way. Well, the one thing you learned along the way was lag three, which you did discover while you were at Gustave Roussy. And you were at Gustave Roussy for quite a long time in a very secure, one assumes secure academic position, which one also assumes was fairly well-funded. But then you decided you wanted to leave that 
and step away and form a company. Why? I mean, that's a very different challenge to benchtop research. Oh, absolutely. In fact, as Gustavo will see, for 12 years from 1990, first publication, 2002 or 2003, we are the only lab in the world working on Lag3, and it was a little bit difficult to publish because nobody was really interested in that. And then uh, Dario Vignali in the US started publishing on Lag3. So I was quite desperate not to think this interaction with Image Class 2 being developed in the clinic because, again, uh, Image Class 2, we knew from uh, many autoimmune diseases that uh, it's at the heart of the immune response and you can destroy it. An organ in a few weeks, like uh, in Hashimoto disease, you can destroy your thyroid in three weeks. So we really wanted to move ahead and find private investors in Paris to develop this. But of course, uh, it was a very, very difficult time because, as said before, cancer vaccines were not at all successful. They were safe, but not successful at the end of the day. Yeah, that's the thing about drugs that don't work. They're usually extremely safe. So you set out and you started this company and you just referred to it briefly. I was wondering if you could tell me just a bit more about your initial conversation with investors. Now, at the time, checkpoints, that word wasn't out there. And how did you convince investors to give you money? I mean, this is a complicated subject. It was very difficult because it was about private investors. And of course, we can talk about a few success with IL2 and different alpha in melanoma, but convince investors that you can address metastatic disease with just stimulating a few T-cells. So it was very uh, pioneering work. So we start a very low dose of the soluble-like 3 molecule called FT-ligimod alpha now, so FT in short, as an adjuvant to vaccines in 2005. But quickly we move with using a much higher dose, trying to stimulate the nodic cell network and use it as a general immunostimulation for cancer. In your initial conversations with investors, did you find, well, were the angels, were the people who were giving you money initially, were they investors with a very deep science background so they really could understand? Oh, what not at doing? all. Not at all. It's really? just we had a little bit of money, just a few million euros, and we have developed the molecule, a few phase one settings, but we never got a series B or C. I mean, uh, investors didn't have deep pockets. And again, there was uh, absolutely no benchmark around. We were the only one developing like three. And uh, we chose to develop FT, a soluble like three molecule, and not a blocking antibody. Because at the time, if you want to develop an antibody in the clinic, it has to be humanized. And it was very expensive to do that. And uh, on top of that, uh, you have to accept to pay royalties on the humanization technology itself. So that was not possible for us to do that. And we choose a more innovative pass triggering APC activation, antigen presenting cell activation, direct cell activation through MHE class 2, the major ligand for like 3. Let's backpedal a bit for those who do not have uh, immunology background. Mine is so-so. Give me mechanistically a snapshot of how LAG3 works. On what cell types is it and what is it doing? So LAG3 is lymphocyte activation gene, so it expressed only following activation on T-cells. 
But in vivo, it expresses only in tissues where the, you have a chronic stimulation through the T-cell receptor with the same peptide again and again. So this could be a inflamed tonsil. This could be a tumor site, autoimmune disease site, where a few immunodominant tumor peptide or self-antigen in the case of autoimmunity presented the T-cell receptor. So after a few weeks, the T-cells become exhausted and express like three. And it's pretty stable expression on high expression. Uh, for instance, on TILS, you can find TILS uh, where the uh, majority of TILS express like three. Does LAG3 co-express with PD-1 or CTLA-4, or is it entirely independent? Not necessarily. Very often it is expressed with PD-1, and you don't find so much CTLA-4 on TILS, but not necessarily. So it's an obvious idea to block LAG3 class 2 interaction with a blocking antibody. In fact, we already had a publication on patents on that in 1994, at the time, LAG3, but also PD-1 and CTL-4 were called uh, co-inhibitory receptors. They were specifically inhibiting uh, TCR signaling. So now I know that they are called immune checkpoint molecules, but that's what they are, really, co-inhibitory receptors. Well, I want to talk now about your pipeline. You have mentioned a drug called FT, which is a shorter version of a drug that I can't pronounce, so I'll let you pronounce it for me. You have four assets in various stages of development. We're going to talk about two of them today. Let's start with the one that was just in the news. And this I'm going to call IMP321, also FT. You can give me the long name in a moment. This is the subject of a trial that is called TACT-003. This is a phase 2B investigation in head and neck that dosed its first patient all of two days ago, which would have been August 5th. Now, tell me more about the drug, the trial design and the expected readout. So FTLAGIMOD is a fusion protein. It's not an antibody. It targets MHE class 2 receptors and donoric cells, and it will activate the donoric cells in a few hours. So it's an agonist concept. It's an MHE class 2 agonist concept. So this is very, very different from what people are thinking about like 3 meaning using a blocking antibody an antagonist concept targeting not the APCs, but the T-cells themselves. So with FTLAGIMOD, uh, of course, we don't see any autoimmune disorders because we don't target the T-cell directly. So T-cells could not get wild in a sense. And we are stimulating CD8 T-cells a physiological way after dendritic cell activation because, in fact, dendritic cells are a very important subset. They are the one giving not only the specificity that is antigen presentation to the T-cells, but also the direction and functionality of these T-cells. They give the license to kill to the CD8 T-cells. And this is very important to understand. And what was the design of the trial for TACT-003? Yeah, this new trial in Edenek carcinoma is, first of all, its first line Edenek and it's a randomized trial, possibly a, in a registration setting. And we combine FT or FT-Lagimod alpha, the real name, with pembrolizumab. So with FT, you push the gas on the immune system, activating APCs, and then a lot of secondary target cells and T cells, CD4, CD8, even some NK cells. And on the other side, you uh, give pembrolizumab to remove the break on the T cells at the tumor site. 
And we, so since we are starting right now, we'll see some results in the second half of next year. How many patients will you be enrolling? It's about 160 patients, but this could be extended. Okay. So there is another trial with recent news. That's TACT-002. This is a phase two study with FD, also with PEMBRO, but this is non-small cell. And you had some efficacy data at ASCO just this last June. Could you tell me just a bit about that? Yes, TACT-002 is a previous trial we've been working on in the last two years. So it's an umbrella trial. Not only we have non-small cell lung carcinoma, but also head and neck, second line. And we're in this two indications, we got uh, pretty good results, even so it's not a randomized setting, but it's exactly the same design. You push the gas with FT, with an APC activator, and you remove the break with uh, pembrolizumab. So it's in collaboration with Merck. And what's the next step for 002? So the next step is, uh, in fact, Tactio 3 for adenic carcinoma, but in terms of uh, non-small cell lung cancer, we are extending the number of patients to have more than 110 patients treated and to look then at the different subgroups, squamous, non-squamous, and the different pdl one expression. So we want to see whether the combination is really effective, of course, not only in hot tumors, but also in tepid tumors or even in cold tumors. That's what our results tend to show at the moment, but we need more patients to make sure we are on the right track before starting a phase three. By tepid or cold, you mean like pancreas or prostate? No, no, or... tepid mean uh, in terms of PDL1, it's called the TPS score is oh, 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 oh. Uh, between, uh, yes, one and, and 49% of got the it, TPS score. It, got yes. Got it. The drug is also being investigated in a breast cancer trial, and this trial has an acronym. AIPAC, which stands for Active Immunotherapy Paclitaxel. And this is reported at last year's San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference. This is a phase 2B study in hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer patients. It's the drug versus placebo in combination with standard of care. Could you just give me a snapshot of what you presented in San Antonio? Yes, first of all, I have to say that this is a very difficult tumor to deal with. It's not really immunogenic. And in the last 15 years, when patients start standard chemotherapy like a weekly pachytaxel, there is not much advance in terms of new drugs. I mean, there has been some new drugs. Patients start chemotherapy when they receive endocrine therapy. I mean, the CDK4-6 inhibitors. But really, they are in need of new drugs because this disease is devastating and more or less all patients are going to die from the disease in the next two, three years when they start chemotherapy. So we think that with the chemotherapy, of course, you increase tumor antigen release from a few tumor cells and stimulating the neuronic cell network may increase the CD80 cell response and could lead to uh, some clinical benefit. And that's where I've shown at uh, San Antonio Breast Cancer last year, preliminary results in terms of OS, and we got a significantly different improvement in patients less than 65 years old. So in all patients, it seems that it's not working very well, and it's maybe related to immunosenescence. We learned in the last year that indeed uh, for COVID-19, 
your immune system is not working very well, and that's why uh, old people die in hospital, in contrast to younger people. That's the concept of immunosenescence. And of course, very often we forget about this in our daily practice in oncology. What is the next step for AIPAC trial? So the APAC trial, we should get final OS results in a few months. And then, of course, we are discussing with competent authorities about the next step, which, of course, could be a phase three registration trial in, for instance, let's say in these subsets of patients less than 65 years. But this depends on yeah the answer we'll get from competent authorities, FDA and EMA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, I want to switch gears. We're going to go from talking about cancer to talking about autoimmunity, which a lot of people don't realize it's two sides of the same coin when we're talking about immunotherapies. There is an asset called IMP761. Tell me about that. How does the design differ from your antagonist? And what indications are you considering? Yes, the concept of a LAX3 agonist, like a PD-1 agonist, is pretty obvious since this Receptors are co-inhibitory receptors. If you engage them and decrease this receptor signaling, then autoimmune patients could benefit from that. Now, the problem is how to develop a, a good agonist antibody, and this is quite difficult. It took us uh, 10 years to find one, which is now moving into uh, phase one. We are still working on the manufacturing side of it. And so it bring together uh, several discontinuous epitope and it mimics MHE class 2 binding to LAX3 and therefore there is some uh, negative signaling into T cells going on. And we think with this new approach we can really develop something, a new concept which is not using uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, targeting TNF, IL-6 or using corticosteroid but really look at the root cause of autoimmunity, the root cause of 95% of autoimmune disease. It has been shown that it's basically a few T cells organizing a self-antigen very aggressively. And if you could dampen these overreactions, then the concept could be used in many different autoimmune disease settings. At the moment, in terms of indication, we're thinking about TH1-driven diseases, something not too complicated, like type 1 diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or, yes, a disease which are primarily TH1 or not TH17 or more complex situations. I need to go back for just a second because this issue of autoimmunity, when you use the checkpoint agents, you can run into issues of autoimmunity, type 1 diabetes, various things, pneumonitis. So, When you add LAG3 to Pembro, if I understand the mechanism correctly, you shouldn't really be having an additive adverse effect as far as autoimmune disease. Is that correct? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Because FT, again, is boosting the DC network and not addressing directly the T cells. So there are some feedback mechanisms still working and T cells are physiologically a trigger by their interaction with the DC, and the DC are the one are the general of the immune system. Uh, the CD T cells are the soldiers, and they get uh, all the information from the DC in terms, for instance, of functionality, capacity to produce several cytokines. 
So uh, DC is not only about providing the antigen, the specificity of the response, but also uh, providing the functionality and the direction where to go, whether it's energy or uh, T-cell proliferation and activation. So we haven't seen any autoimmune disorders with FT. Have you had any signals that were different than what you have seen with the normal IO drug? There is no normal IO drugs. I mean, people are Okay. <laughs> Thinking about ICR, immune checkpoint inhibitors, where indeed you see autoimmune disorders, but this is a very different concept, and you don't see that. What you see in terms of adverse event with FT is uh, some local inflammation at uh, the injection site in the skin, subcutaneous injection. That's mainly what you see, because there, there is a lot of Langerhans cells in the skin, and therefore, due to the high concentration of FT, you get some local inflammation that will disappear in one or two days. I didn't ask that before. What is the dosing schedule? At the moment, it's a 30 milligram every two weeks sub-Q. Oh, so easy enough on the patient. So it's a low dose because it's an agonist. So it's enough to engage 1-2% of MHE2. And that's good enough to transduce a signal able to induce dynamic cell activation, monocyte activation, that's what we see in our patient in the blood, but also increase in CD8 T cell in the blood. Okay. Well, I have the science questions, and now I just have two business questions. And the first is, have to do with lawyers. Where does the IP reside for all of this work? Is it all in-house or licensing? Or Yes, everything is in-house. And of course, we have a strong IP portfolio, knowing the history of the company. And yes, I think it's clear cut for many, many years to come because the agonist antibody, it's a unique concept. Also, the depleting antibody used in autoimmunity by our licensees, it's a unique concept. Uh, same for Eftilagimod. The only one which could be looked at as a Me Too concept is a blocking antibody in immuno-oncology developed by Novartis. Because as you know, Novartis, Merck, Regeneron, and BMS, the leader in the field, have all their own blocking antibody being tested in uh, different trials in immuno-oncology. But the three others are unique, and yes, and so the IP is, is, is really strong. All right, fine. And the final question, your runway, sir. How much cash you got? I think uh, with the projects we are running now, we have enough money till end of 23. We raised a significant amount of cash last month. So I don't see any issue about this next year. Splendid. Well, sir, I wish you the best of luck. As I said before, I don't often get to talk to someone who's in charge of a company promoting something that they actually discovered. So that's a privilege for me, and thank you for that. And I wish you the best of luck with your business going forward. Ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have today. Today has been my great pleasure to speak with Dr. Frederick Trebel. He is the CSO, founder, CMO of Immutep. Doctor, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of life-size Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadan at lifesciadvisors.com. Until next week then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell. 
whatever boosts your portfolio.